so, Ndugu. I must say it's been a very rewarding trip. And this morning, I awoke from my night in the wilderness completely transformed. I'm like a new man. For the first time in years, I feel clear. I know what I want. I know what I've got to do. And nothing's going to stop me ever again. alarming what is this radio show coming to you're asking yourself and you may ask yourself why are we listening to that song and you may ask yourself where is the mellifluous midnight music of the soul food ghost light radio hour and you may tell yourself this is not my beautiful pirate radio show and you may tell yourself this is not my beautiful late night disc jockey Once in a Lifetime, which is the long way around to the theme of tonight's show, commemorating the first anniversary of a truly once-in-a-lifetime event, January 27th, 2021, the day I quit my day job and ran away to join the circus. After 37 years as the Artistic Director of Pacific Theater, I sat at my desk, I watched the seconds go by, on the clock in my office, counting down to exactly 5 o'clock p.m. 
just as my movie counterpart Mr. Jack Nicholson had done at the beginning of About Schmidt, a show in which he impersonated a tired old retired man who hit the road in a brand spanking new Winnebago in search of, well, I don't know what he was in search of exactly. Neither did he. This was not the easy rider Jack Nicholson of 1969 heading out on the highway looking for adventure and whatever came his way. This was the 30-some years older Jack, born to be mild. No Steppenwolf for his theme music, just Bert Kempfert and the tackiest song of all time, Afrikan Beat. You know, at various moments in my life, somebody or another has commented, hey, you look like Jack Nicholson, which is pretty strange, since other folks have also commented along those lines saying, hey, you look like Ronnie Howard. So that's me, a cross between Opie in The Andy Griffith Show and Jack Torrance in The Shining. Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. No good ones. Meet Danny. He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. What's up, Doc? Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now... Sometimes, what we need the most is just around the corner. I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. I love it. I could see the city light. But it's true. One summer afternoon in 1979, splashing around in a swimming pool in Eugene, Oregon with the kids from my youth group, I came up out of the water and Christine, I think it was, or maybe her cousin Sherry goes, whoa, you look like Jack Nicholson. Scary. And then sometime during the first year I was married, I got home well after midnight, traumatized by The Shining, which was playing at the Hollywood And Carol woke up as I got in bed, and I recounted the whole story in all its creepy, disturbing detail, scared out of my wits, quite frankly, until I sat up and looked at the poor girl and said, Wendy, I'm home. Wendy, I'm home. And Carol says, don't do that. You look just like Jack Nicholson. And then at CalArts in our makeup class. I digress, but I must point out that I'm not referring to an extra class session that was scheduled to replace a day when the instructor was absent, not that kind of makeup class, but I mean a class where we learned to put on makeup for theatrical purposes, not so much cosmetic. I always got a kick out of the idea that sometime we might have a makeup makeup class. But anyhow, at CalArts in our makeup class... We had the assignment to make ourselves up to look like somebody famous. And I chose Jack Nicholson. And I didn't have to do too much except darken my eyebrows and look manic. So as my celebrity doppelganger got older, I aged along with him a few years behind, which was kind of fun, until it wasn't anymore. The day I saw about Schmidt and went home and looked in the mirror and thought, Oh no. I still look like Jack Nicholson, but it isn't funny anymore. This is not my beautiful face. How did I get here? And you may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? But once I really did catch up with Jack and found myself counting down the seconds until I would rise from my desk and walk out of my office, a free man in Richmond, unfettered and alive, 
Until then, I, I, I got a real kick out of our parallel lives. Only I wasn't going to make a hash of retirement the way poor Warren Schmidt did. And although I did celebrate by driving over to the Dairy Queen and ordering what my daughter Katie and I call a Warren Schmidt special. What can I get for you? Um, I'll have a, a blizzard with vanilla ice cream. What would you like in it? Um, I'll have some uh, Reese's Pieces and uh, some uh, cookie dough. What size? Uh, medium. There was no Winnebago for this guy. Pirate Radio was in my future. Once I started counting down toward that long-anticipated day, I got a heck of a kick out of setting my phone alarm to sound that ridiculously, alarmingly tacky tune as my cue to pack up my stuff and head to work pronto. That got me moving. I didn't let myself turn off the alarm until I was out of the house. Quite the motivator. But as well as causing me to scramble to turn off that darn alarm and get moving, it was a reminder that someday I would join my doppelganger, Jack, and live exactly as I like and do precisely what I want. Well, after all, Pickering, I'm an ordinary man who desires nothing more than just an ordinary chance to live exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants. An average man of mine, of no eccentric whim, who likes to live his life free of strife, doing whatever he thinks is best for him. Well, just a, an ordinary man. So here I am. On January 28th, 2022, marking the one-year anniversary of Warren Schmidt Day, Henry Higgins Day. And this is how I'm choosing to celebrate with you, my closest soul food friends. Thinking back on what all those decades at Pacific Theater were about. The plays. The music. Spinning some of my favorite songs from some of my favorite shows from 37 of the favorite years of my life. The tables are empty The dance floor's deserted You play the same love song It's the tenth time you've heard it That's the beginning Just one of the clues You've had your first lesson In learning the blues The cigarettes you light One after another won't help you forget her And the way that you love her You're only burning A torch you can't lose But you're on the right track For learning the blues When you're at home alone The blues will taunt you constantly when you're out in a crowd The blues will haunt your memory The nights when you don't sleep The whole night you're crying But you can't forget her Soon you even stop trying You walk that floor And wear out your shoes when you feel your heart break You're learning the blues When you're at home alone The blues will taunt you constantly When you're out in a crowd Those blues will haunt your memory 
the nights when you don't sleep That whole night you're crying But you can't forget her Soon you even stop trying You'll walk the floor And you'll wear out your shoes When you feel your heart break You're learning those blues Frank Sinatra learning the blues on genuine vinyl. From our 1989 Fringe show, J.P. Allen's precise, disturbing, wickedly difficult play, The Casino. J.P. was my CalArts buddy, who ended up in Seattle for a while. We rehearsed in the basement of University Chapel with a certifiably crazy director who was a Vietnam vet, who seemed to figure I was either one of the Viet Cong or I was President Nixon who had sent him over there to be traumatized. A wickedly difficult show to get just right, punctuated by beats and pauses and silences, all charged with surreal, almost David Lynchian tension and subtext and the threat of violence and the music of Frank Sinatra. Until that show, I despised Frank Sinatra. When I heard The Voice, I heard cheesy, sleazy, Las Vegas nightclub boozing, womanizing schlock, definitely contending for the top slot in my official bottom ten musical artists of all time. And I had a list. So when it came time to choose the music for Between the Scenes of the Casino set, naturally, in Las Vegas, I was all in. That will be horrible in just the right way. But damn, standing there in the wings, show after show, waiting to make my entrance into that depressing motel room of a set, I started to have to admit, that guy could sing. The phrasing, the voice, the... The the orchestrations. Uh, Against all my better prejudgment, I started to really dig Frank Sinatra. So that one was for you, JP. With memories of heading out of San Francisco en route to a shady river someplace north of the bay with the windows down, sunglasses on, and Frank... Blaring from the car stereo. In the spring of 1994, just before our little theater at 12th and Hemlock was completed, we put on a few shows up in the parish hall at Holy Trinity, rigged up some temporary staging, set out folding chairs, hung up some lighting, and got started. I mean, who wanted to wait until our concrete bunker was finished? Heck, we hadn't even raised enough money to put seats down there, let alone a lighting grid, (laughs) let alone lights. So after a three-year hiatus, let's just put on some plays, gosh darn it. One was Scott Hafso's brilliant, sweet and bitter one-act, The Ranger Ned Story, in which I got to be seduced by Gina Shirelli. That's not an opportunity you pass up. In the play, my unhappy, nebbish character is leading a life of quiet desperation, studying to take the bar exam for the third time, when he falls asleep in front of the television, watching a late-night rerun of his favorite childhood TV show, The Ranger Ned Show. When he wakes up the next morning, there, sitting on the sofa, is Ranger Ned himself wondering why Michael didn't grow up to be a forest ranger, as he had dreamed of being. I think the music choice was Tim Dixon's, who had come out to Vancouver to be part of the fledgling four-person rep company that was going to be the core of our first season in the new space once it was finished, along with me and Erla Faye Forsyth and Dirk Van Stralen. At any rate, the music choice was perfect.
Let's pretend that someone told us There's a dream you'll find is true When night winds call and stars appear Tonight while love is new Let's pretend that above us the stars rise in this room Now we'll know why angels sing Tonight when love is new Here am I, my heart is lonely For the thrill of love Take my heart and let me be dear Now the moon has turned to silver The stars have gathered dew Let's pretend our love can end trio let's pretend a year later at the end of our first season actually in the new space we did get seating eventually which was a lovely treat for our audience i'm sure we staged the first full-on comedy in pacific theater's then 11-year history the foreigner it featured a terrific playlist of songs for our pre-show, intermission, post-show music. Everything from Neil Young's Southern Man to Mahalia Jackson and We Shall Overcome to Randy Newman's Short People to a bunch of tunes from Taj Mahal's Sounder soundtrack. But I think my favorite stroke was opening Act One, the arrival of the very British very uptight Charlie Baker at a ramshackle fishing lodge in Backwoods, Georgia, with this version of this song. And then tagging this scene, not with the King Singers, but with Ray Charles. Jo- 
Georgia the whole day through just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind Said a Georgia, Georgia, a song of you comes as sweet and clear as moonlight through the pines. Other arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Still in the peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to you I said, Georgia Georgia No peace I find Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Other arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Still in peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to you Whoa Georgia, no peace, no peace I find, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind, I said just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia You're not in England anymore. Dirk played Ellard. Erla was Betty, and man, we had us some fun. That fall, Erla and Pam Raven and I headed to Edmonton to rehearse the world premiere of Gillette Elvgren's stark, beautiful, true play, Paper Wings. A two-hander, so Erla was the stage manager. We were a tiny little rep company. We did what was needed. There was an uncanny moment in those rehearsals. As I ran a scene opposite Pam, who had also played Catherine in The Foreigner, man, I miss her. She was... She was a fine, fine actor. It somehow occurred to me, right in the middle of the scene, that I was wearing cowboy boots. I mean, I was rehearsing in regular shoes, but suddenly I was imagining cowboy boots. A peculiar thought for a character who was a university creative writing prof, a poet from Chicago. But without thinking it through at the moment, just seemed like the right affectation for the man's man self-styled artiste I was playing, though I really only thought that through later. I just imagined cowboy boots. Here's the uncanny part. The scene ended. We got our scripts out to take notes, and I'm thinking, I, I need to talk to Morris. Talk him into cowboy boots for Stan. And Morris goes through his notes, and then at some point he stops and he goes... Okay, this is out of left field, but what would you think 
of cowboy boots for Stan. It just came into my head while you were doing the scene. So after rehearsal, we went shopping for cowboy boots. Good thing we were in Alberta. That show also featured found music for scene transitions, and it was phenomenal. And now it's lost. Nobody remembers what it was. I kind of think it might have been early Sarah McLaughlin, but I've never tracked down the tunes. Something from Touch or Soulless or Fumbling Towards Ecstasy, I suppose. I need to give those a listen. See if anything suddenly sounds familiar. Reminds me of Cowboy Boots or CD motels along Route 66. But the next year, Gillian Welch released her breakout album, Revival. And I wished this could have been the title track for our production of Paper Wings. And in my mind, it is.
Gillian Welch. When she was a student at UC Santa Cruz, she played bass in a goth band and drums in a psychedelic surf band. Then one time, a roommate was playing a bluegrass album by the Stanley Brothers, and Gillian had an epiphany. The first song came on, and I just stood up, and I kind of walked into the other room as if I was in a tractor beam and stood there in front of the stereo. It was just as powerful as the electric stuff, and it was songs I'd grown up singing. All of a sudden, I'd found my music. T-Bone Burnett produced her first record with David Rawlings called Revival, which sounded like a long-lost Depression-era recording, mountain music and country and gospel, but with better recording equipment. Austere, sparse, plain, beautiful, but never pretty. Perfection. No surprise when T-Bone recruited Gillian to join Emmylou Harris and Alison Krauss on the soundtrack of O Brother, Where Art Thou? Around the time of Paper Wings, Morris and I started collaborating on a new version of his play Tent Meeting, which I had seen with Alan Denoyer the summer before we launched Pacific Theater. Over the years, I, I kept telling Morris I wanted to stage Tent Meeting, and he'd go, well, it's not really a play. Well, of course it is. I saw it. It was fantastic. Yeah, but the script, it's not really a play. But I persevered, and eventually he relented, and he sent me the script, and I read it, and it wasn't really a play. Morris was right again, which he will be pleased to hear me say. Morris, if you're out there, that's the only time you're going to hear that. Now, I realized that what Morris had created absolutely was theater, music, settings, characters filled out by really good actors, but while there was a beginning and an end, there wasn't really much story in the middle. So we rolled up our sleeves. I would write a draft and send it to Morris. He would rewrite that, send it back to me, back and forth like that, and by 1997, we had a play. I came up with a batch of songs to add to the show that kind of broadened the gospel music palette. Originally, it consisted of quarter, quartet tunes that his dad had sung in his younger years in Baptist churches on the Alberta prairies. But I added things like The Ball Game by Sister Winona Carr, a bit of Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers, and a, a lot of old-timey gospel tunes that I found on Ken Whiteley's records some while he was with the original Sloth Band, and several from his solo gospel album, Up Above My Head. And the title track became more or less the theme song of our new tent mating.
Listen, can you hear that? That's gospel. That sweet sound, that blend. Those voices coming from right down here, from the heart, from the spirit. I used to sing gospel a long time ago. I was a kid at the time. What did I know? Right out of high school. Loved to sing. I didn't even mind the preaching so much back then. The whole business just made me feel good. Still does when the tenor can reach for a high one that doesn't sound just a little flat. That's it. There was me, George, Cliff, and Elroy out singing for Jesus, bringing on the spirit with the sound of our voices. Elroy, or maybe it was George, he'd always say, the spirit comes with the falsetto from way up high and then just warms his way down into the bass. And that's gospel. I don't know. We'll see. There's a tent meeting here tonight. And somewhere along that road over there, the Reverend Elroy Phillips, evangelist, is coming in a cloud of dust with a truck full of meeting with this hot gospel quartet of his, the Calvary Men. I'm stranded on the banks of old Jordan. Tell me how That's gospel. The original sloth band, Up Above My Head, first recorded by Sister Rosetta Tharp in 1956, about 20 years after the events of our play, but nobody was counting. Bright particular star told the story of Lillia MacDonald, the daughter of the 19th century writer George MacDonald. Lillia was an actress. I've written other plays I loved, plays I'm proud of. I couldn't put one above the others, but I'd have to say, this is the one that's closest to my heart. The story of a young woman who loves the stage with all her heart, whose parents encourage her in her acting, but only so far. Of course, she shouldn't leave the family and become a professional actress. I mean, that's not a place for a proper Christian woman. And she's torn another way by her passion to serve the poor and torn another way by her sense of responsibility to her many younger brothers and sisters and worries about her father's health, and a romance with a dashing young man of wealth and status whose mother could never condone a common actress marrying into the family fortune. This isn't all, you know, all I'm meant to do. I feel it when I play in Shakespeare. I feel it when I can do something for one of the tenants, something that actually makes a difference. I have work to do, work the world has need of, only I am not doing it. Otherwise, why this yearning? I'm made for something bigger, Charlie, something something I don't know. When my father speaks, 
people are enthralled. They say it is like listening to Jesus. In Philadelphia, 3,000 people crammed into a 2,800-seat theatre to hear him speak about the rhyme of the ancient mariner, if you can believe it. And they said it was better than any sermon they had ever heard, that God spoke through him. What if I have that in me? And I do nothing but babysit my brothers and read poems to the poor people. I think it lives in me, just as it does in my father. Sometimes it presses so hard inside me, I fear it will seep out through my skin if I don't find a way to let it out, that I will bleed from the eyes. I'm sorry. I've never spoken of these things. Something takes hold when I am on a stage inside a character and it could transform people somehow. Rebecca DeBoer. The whole time writing that play, I had Rebecca in mind as Lilia. It turns out that that role meant a lot to her. A couple of years later, she phoned me. She'd just given birth to their first daughter. They decided to name her Lilia. I don't think I've ever done something that was more of a passion project. A play about my great passions, not only the theater, but God and calling, fathers and daughters. Dan Amos played Mark Twain in the play, and Lewis Carroll, and the bombastic Shakespearean actor Charles Bicknell. And he put the sound score together. And oh my, did he nail it. Doesn't that create a world? On that show, I did what I never do. However much I love a play that I've directed, I rarely go back to see it again after opening night. On a bright particular star, I returned more than once. And on closing night, I did what I really never do. I snuck a portable tape recorder into the theater and hid it under my seat. And I recorded the performance. Don't tell the playwright. The sound quality isn't good, but... My, oh my. Here's the final curtain call. you miss it? Soon again, I think. Caitlin has me lined up for the next Pacific Theater show, How the World Began, end of March. The perfect role in the ultimate essence of Pacific Theater play, with my pal Sarah Rogers at the helm and two superb actors in the cast with me, so soon again. 
good Lord willing, and the case count don't rise? Well, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. I'm only halfway through this wander through my favorite tunes from my favorite shows, but we're already way past midnight, so I think we'll just pick it up next week right about here. This simple piano piece underscored the play's final moments that interlaced two letters, one from Lilia MacDonald to her mother, Louisa, the other from Louisa to her daughter. I can still hear Carrie Norris and Rebecca DeBoer in my mind's ear when I listen to A Wild Rose by Edward McDowell. Keeping that ghost light burning. <laughs>